All right, folks, I think you know the drill. First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 27. I don't know if you think about it very much, but you find yourself in a church where the pastors are committed to systematic, progressive exposition of the Bible. So we don't pick, generally, we don't really pick and choose what parts of the Bible we will preach, what parts we won't preach. And this is one of those passages that uh, we would never pick if it was not for walking through books. And one of the reasons we do that is because we are convinced that God knows better than we do what his people and what his church needs to hear. So as we're reading this passage together, uh, we'll keep that in mind. Before, we, before I read it, just notice there's not a single mention of God in this passage. There's hardly, it's debatable, if there's any theological or even moral commentary so it's an interesting passage. So let's, uh, let's just open by reading these 12 verses together. 1 Samuel 27. I think I'll go into the first two verses of 28 as well. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me that, than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul would despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Ashik, the son of Maach, the king of Gath. And David lived with Ashik at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, and Ahiam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told of Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Verse 5, Then David said to Ashik, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Ashik gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Ashik. When Ashik said, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jer- wow. Jerahalamites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom, all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Ashik trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Verse, chapter 28, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Ashik said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Ashik, Very well, you shall know that... 
what your servant can do. And Ashik said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you have preserved and given us your word. We have it in our very hands. We can understand it in our own language. We can take it home with us. We can possess it. We can study it and we can know it. Father, none of that is any good to us unless you, by your Spirit, illuminate it in our hearts. So, Father, would you do that tonight? This text seems far away and distant from us. So, Father, would you reveal by your Spirit what is true and what is helpful, pointing us to Jesus and to the message of the gospel and to how we are to live lives that please you. So please help us tonight. Father, let my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Just let your word remain and let it bear fruit. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, I know it's not something that you see very often in the hills of eastern Tennessee, but maybe, but if you go to the larger cities in the U.S. or perhaps in Europe, you may see an ad from the American Atheists. Or perhaps the Freedom from Religion Association. I don't know if you've ever seen atheist ads before, but, uh, but I, I've seen some. I, I saw a photo of some of their efforts today. There is a uh, courthouse in Florida, in Bradford County, where there is a large uh, stone, I don't know, sculpture or monument of the Ten Commandments that's outside the courthouse there. And right beside it, the American atheists have erected a large stone bench with a quote saying, the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. So they have advertising efforts to resist uh, what they perceive to be an opposition of their freedom. Well, so sometimes they run these large-scale advertising campaigns. I've seen them on buses, and, and I saw one such campaign. It was interesting. It focused on the brokenness of characters in the Bible. It used well-known heroes, and it kind of aired their dirty laundry and said, see, like, you, you want this? So, for example, under Abraham, uh, I don't know where they got the photo of Abraham. It's interesting. <laughs> But under the photo of Abraham, they would say, here's a coward who is willing to sacrifice the honor of his wife to save his own skin. And then it would say, it would quote in the Bible where God called Abraham a friend of God. It would also put a picture up of Moses and it would say, Moses, you know, was a murderer, yet Moses was the one who brought down the Ten Commandments. What is one of those Ten Commandments? You shall not kill. And then, of course, they had a picture of David, the seductive playboy, coward, murderer. And the ad asks, a man after God's own heart? Question mark. You see, for these atheists, they thought that the brokenness of the people that God used somehow invalidated the Bible or the existence of God. They, they thought that, that these broken people were actually an apologetic against the Christian faith, and against the validity of the Bible. I mean, what kind of religion makes heroes out of murderers? What kind of God befriends scoundrels and prostitutes? But they misunderstand Scripture quite a bit, don't they? We would say, hey, 
That's the point, right? That we have a God who befriends prostitutes and murderers. The Christian faith alone, among all other religions in the world, makes no effort to hide or excuse the brokenness of, his, of its adherents. In fact, not only are we not ashamed that our God befriends sinners like us, hopefully you haven't lost this part of your story, not only are we not ashamed that God befriends sinners as bad as me, but we celebrate it. It is the essence of our faith. that It is our only hope because the only road into the Christian faith is a road of humility. You can't enter any other way. You can't come to Christ and say, I don't need you. It doesn't work like that. The brokenness of the Bible's characters does not invalidate its truthfulness. We would say it's actually an argument for its truthfulness. This has long been an argument that Christian apologists have, have made about the reliability of the scriptures. Why would, for example, the apostles, <clears throat> the early leaders of the church, and uh, in, in most cases authors of the New Testament books, why would they record their blunders and their failures and their missteps in the foundational doctrines and documents of their religion? Like, why would they do that? Have you heard this argument before? It's, it's, it's an argument for the reliability of the scripture, right? That's not human nature. There's a major political memoir that came out this week, and I haven't read it. But generally, in political memoirs and in autobiographies, they genuinely, they generally and inevitably cast the best possible light on themselves in every conceivable situation, right? It is full of flattery, self-flattery, and scrubbed of all failures, right? Most of the time. That's what we do, but that's not like the Bible. The whole church, the testimony of the church. It was founded on the writings of a bunch of wavering, cowardly, thick-headed numbskulls, right? I know you named your son after one of the disciples, and that's great, but hey, I mean, this is, this is the case, right? And do you know why that is? Because the Bible's true. It's true. The Bible is about real people and a real God and a real Savior, if you want moralistic, romantic heroes, try as you might and try as some Sunday school curriculums do, you won't find it in the Bible. Whenever you find like a guy or a woman who's like kind of a hero, it's mainly because we don't have a lot about them, like maybe a chapter or two, right? If you think about the most sanitized folks in the Bible, because humans are sinners. Generally speaking, if we're honest, most of the Bible's heroes make confusing role models, and I think that that actually serves to magnify the incredible sovereignty and mercy of God. The Bible is not about people. It's about God. He is a holy God who deals in the real world. And in the real world, there are perverts, drunks, tax collectors, prostitutes, cowards, and thieves, and you and me. As we've been studying through Samuel, we've seen this contrast between Saul and David. It's pretty obvious, right? And while David is clearly, like, preferable to Saul, and in many ways we are called to imitate David, David is no Florence Nightingale. In fact, if we knew Florence Nightingale better, we would discover that Florence Nightingale is no Florence Nightingale. But that's a mouthful. 
The book is a, and it has been a roller coaster of David's successes and failures. His wins and his losses, his faith and his unbelief. And even, it's, I mean, it's almost confusing, right? Like, like, is he up? Is he down? Like, how do we interpret this? Like, what do we make of this? And, and even though we have seen David growing in his faith, like last week, we have not yet seen David fully grown. He's not yet mature. And tonight we will see a familiar theme. A theme that we should not ever grow callous to. A theme that we should not grow callous to. Don't, don't worry about it. It's fine. It happens all the time to me. When I was in uh, school, I just got to tell you because we got to recover. When I was in school, uh, I, came in, I was in college like right when cell phones came out. And I had a professor that had a rule. He said, if your cell phone ever goes off, he said, I will kick you out of my class. And so uh, sure enough, a guy beside me, his phone went off. And he picked up the phone and he said, yes, sir, Mr. President. No, my professor would not mind. He's a very understanding guy. And he just, he just walked out of class, which is great. Yeah, yeah. No, it's no problem. Tonight we see a familiar theme that we must never grow callous to. We have a God who is patient with sinners. A God who is patient with sinners. A God who does not treat us as our sins deserve. A God who blesses us and accomplishes his purposes in us. Not because we're faithful. We're not. But because he is faithful. Tonight, even in this passage, even though this passage is one of those few places in the Bible where God is not even mentioned, we know the whole story of the Bible and we know the story of David. So we are able to see the invisible hand of God and how God is a covenant-keeping God. Now, this passage is full of difficulties for the interpreter. We only read it once and I know you've only had a chance probably to read it once, but... Not only is God not mentioned, but the author does not give us much interpretation. There's not much commentary, not much moral commentary on the events. And there's places in the Bible where you'll have uh, an event recorded and everybody's like, is this good or is this bad? Like, were they supposed to do this? Like, what what are we supposed to do? I mean, am I supposed to name my daughter Rahab, right? Was was the lie good? Do you see what 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 do we make of this? So, and that's what the author here does. So often he, he reports David's actions, but he doesn't commend or condemn them either way. So we got to be careful. And I'm going to try not to overinterpret or overpreach this text, and that's left to your judgment. But we recognize that it's in the scriptures, and so it has value. So let's walk through the passage together and let's see what we can learn from this passage, and let's see if it is of any use to our faith. And I'm going to suggest that it is. We could break the passage up into three simple sections. Uh, the first section is here in, in verse 1 through 4. And so if we ask the question, uh, what's going on here? Why is David hanging out with the Philistines? Okay. Now, verse 1 is a very revealing verse for us. It, it gives us a look into David's fragile psyche it's easy for us modern Bible readers to, to forget. David was being hunted down like an animal. I, I, can't, I cannot imagine what that is like. And that, I imagine, would wear on a man. And David is showing signs of wear. 
And though we've seen lots of triumphal moments in, of faith in David's life, we've also been through the valleys. And it's ridiculous for us to think that, that just because David was strong yesterday, that he will be strong today. Right? That's not how life works. That's not how your life works. That's not how my life works. Humans, we're just not wired like that. We're not that consistent. It's amazing how uncharitable we can be in, in our assessments of others, right? It's so much easier to see failures in other people than it is in ourselves. We may have the same streaks of weakness in our own lives, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. In verse 1, we clearly see David's faith is spent. All that faith that we saw in chapter 24, it's used up. All that faith we saw in chapter 6, yep, that's gone too. It's, he's running out. I'm not really sure what changed from chapter 26. I mean, look, look, look down at your Bible. Just two verses ago, 26 verse 24. David was confident that God would deliver him out of all of his tribulations. And in just two little verses, David has given up. You ever done that? You ever felt like that? You saw God working yesterday, but today, where is God? It's a struggle for all of God's people. Though God has con- constantly sustained David during his roadrunner-like race all across the land of Judah, now he says, I give up. Literally, there in verse 1, there is nothing better for me than I should escape. There's nothing, God is not doing anything good here. It's time for this to end. This shows the depth of David's anguish. It shows that David is at the end of his rope. And so now he decides to revert back to a very human, very godless plan B. David has once before, if you remember back in chapter 21, David has once before escaped to the land of the Philistines. You remember? And it went very badly for him. He almost got a whole, no, he got a whole village killed. Right? When he escaped to the Philistines last time. And the only way that he, that was actually Gad, the only way he got out of the Philistine village was that he had to pretend to be insane. Right? And we said before, if your plan ever involves you slobbering over yourself and looking like a, an insane person, you probably need a new plan. But that's the best that David can do. And it's a wonderful reminder to us of the limits of human wisdom. Right? But human ingenuity is very limited. And it's very forgetful. So David again decides to flee to the land of the Philistines and to find refuge in this, with this king who has the frustrating name Ashik. Ashish. Achish. Go with it, right? Who is, you have to understand, he's the enemy of Israel. Right? You've got to understand that part of the story. These are the enemies of Israel. David himself, right? David himself fought the Philistines. He killed a famous one, right? So I guess David is reasoning, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So I guess I'll, you know, go there. And I guess that's how it worked for, for Ashik. Saul won't seek David among his enemies. And David was right. I mean, it sort of worked, I guess. But most commentators agree that when David decided to, to leave Judah and to take refuge with the Philistines, that he crossed more than just a physical boundary, but he crossed a moral boundary as well. They don't all agree with that, but five out of the six that I read do. Because when David went over to the Philistines, he wasn't just going to like drink coffee and do whatever. Right? He, he had to make a compromise. 
Just, just think about how this worked. He had to make a compromise. He, had, he offered his military power to that king. Right? He had substantial military services. That's what David did. He made raids. And that's what he does again. And he had to offer that to this king. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure what changed between 26, 26 and 27, but something happened. In spite of all his experience with the deliverance of God, he had given up on God's protective care. He had made, he made a sinful compromise. I think this serves to remind us that even though the sin of others, we've been talking in the last couple chapters about what it's like when other people are sinning against you in really painful, radical, destructive ways, and how that is a great temptation to sin in response. Well, this situation reminds us that even when we are in terrible situations caused by other people, and even when we have to make hard decisions that are less than ideal, there are some compromises we just cannot make. The sins of others are not an excuse for the sins ourselves. It's one thing to make some difficult decisions in a marriage relationship that's being destroyed by sin. But the sin of your spouse is not a good reason for you to sin by exploding in anger, returning to an extramarital sexual satisfaction, or unbiblical divorce. There are some compromises that we just cannot make. No matter how much brokenness you may face in a relationship, or in a work situation, or in a financial situation, or in a health situation. And though the author does not give us much commentary here, he does give us a clue of how David got here. Again, in verse 1, we see that he had allowed himself to entertain undisciplined and ungodly thoughts. It says, David said in his heart... Now, we've been talking about thinking on Sunday night, so, so hopefully, if you're a part of that discussion, this is triggering some, some lessons and implications for you. But I wonder if perhaps the main reason that God's not mentioned in this text is because David forgot to include him. He forgot to include him in his situation. He wasn't, we don't see David praying. We don't see David asking God for help. We don't see him doing any of those things. David entertained... And then believed and then acted upon an ungodly thought. God is no longer protecting me. Now, did he have plenty of reason, by looking at his circumstances, to, to wonder that? Yeah, I mean, the situation's hard, right? But David wrongly interpreted his trials. He, he, he had truth about God that he forgot and chose instead to believe his eyes and the news reports. David wrongly interpreted the long, lengthy, ongoing nature of his trial as a sign of God's disfavor or his lack of concern or even worse, his inability to really fix it. And so his faith failed on some level. And here we see David seeking a sinful refuge a sinful refuge. We could spend a lot of time talking about this, right? But we are so tempted, are we not? And our problems to seek sinful refuges. Have you noticed how when you have really hard days, the temptation comes faster, right? That's the call of the enemy. Find pleasure somewhere else. There's a difference between the carnal mind and the spiritual mind. David was acting according to the carnal mind. You remember Romans 8, 5? 
My wife and I read this this morning. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on what? On the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. David set his mind on the things of the flesh. He forgot God. He processed his circumstances according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit. We've talked about this a lot in recent chapters, but let's, let's put it like this. Our circumstances can drain our faith, can't they? Have you, have you experienced that? Our circumstances can drain our faith, which is why it is so utterly crucial to your spiritual health to renew your mind day after day in the Scriptures. We can never assume that yesterday's grace is sufficient for today's problems. Yesterday's grace does not make us independent. Like we don't need help anymore, right? That we don't need grace anymore. Yesterday's grace does not make us self-sufficient. You will not ever outgrow your need for God. We always need new help. Just as new trials come in, we need new grace. New trials demand new grace. So where do we get it? Otherwise, we will be tempted to find some sort of sinful refuge. Just like David did. Now our refuge probably won't be running to Philistine. It'll be something else. Something more subtle. But let's move on to this next section. We could explore that for a while. But let's just look, in, starting in verse 5 and on, how did things go for David? Like, what, what is happening here, right? Um, and I'll explain to you why I'm interpreting this more as being a negative uh, season in David's life rather than a fateful season. In verse 5 through 7, we read how David made his arrangements to function in, this, in the land of the Philistines. He asked to live in a separate town so that he wouldn't be a burden to the king, right? But also we learn that this is to give him a little bit of freedom so he can pursue his own agenda. There's a reason that I went to college out of state. Needed to stretch my wings, right? This is where the chapter is a little baffling to me. Because of David's decision, which I interpret to be sinful, we still see all these good things happen. Like, good stuff still happens. But there's bad stuff that happens too. So, let's think about the good stuff first. On the one hand, I think I've got three or four of these. On the one hand, Saul stopped pursuing David. Verse 4, we read that. And then it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, and so he no longer sought him. So David's action worked. But does that mean that God approved? We have to be so careful with this. We have to be so careful. Not necessarily. Just because you experience some sort of success in your life does not mean that God is blessing you because of how you got there. And it does not mean that God is blessing you because of your actions. Did God not bless David's murder plan? It's a weird way to say it. Did God not permit it, right? To murder Bathsheba's husband? Of course God did not bless that, right? We, have to, we must be careful in how we interpret our circumstances, especially if we are using our circumstances, as all of us do on some level, to kind of use as a moral compass on how things are going in our lives and how we're going to obey. Your good circumstances could be a part of God's judgment and a part of your hard heart, just as your bad circumstances could be an indispensable part of God's plan for your growth. 
Just because your sin works doesn't mean that you found a new way. I had a person tell me recently, I sinned and it worked, so I'm sticking with it. Another thing, another good thing that happened is that David receives the village of Zilk, Ziklag, which is wonderful because of its interesting name, right? Verse 6 tells us that Ziklag, which is in the land of Ashik, is the land that the town that the king gave to David, and that it was possessed by the kings of Judah for a very long time. It was a land that, that God intended to give. Uh, he wanted to give this town back in Joshua 15. He was going to give it to Judah anyway. To that tribe, but they failed to capture it. Imagine, imagine that. So here, think about this. We see God sovereignly hijacking David's sin. Isn't that a comfort to know that God does that? He doesn't just leave us running straight down towards our path of sin. God sovereignly hijacks David's sin and he uses it for good. What kind of God is that merciful? I mean, have you not experienced that in your life? When even though you are all hands on deck making a mess of things and God actually somehow uses your mess to bless you. Have you, have you had those moments? I have like last week, right? I mean, he really is a Romans eight twenty eight God. This is not a pipe dream. God is actually able to do this and he does it all the time. Another good thing that happens out of this is that David continues in the conquest of the conquest that Joshua started, the conquest of the promised land. As you know, Israel, because of sin, didn't quite finish it, which led to all these problems, and which is why the Philistine problem continued, and eventually they lost the land. In verse 8 and 9, we read of David's raiding activity, and even though he tricked the king into thinking that he, you've got to notice this, this, we might not notice it because we don't have an atlas in front of us, but what David was doing was he was tricking the king into thinking that he was raiding his own people. But he wasn't. He was lying. Instead, he was raiding kind of like the neutral people, folks that were enemies of Israel, but also enemies of Ashik and, his, and, his, and the Philistines. And David was actually continuing the long-standing war against Israel's abiding enemies. There's a sense where David is doing what Saul was supposed to be doing. Saul was so busy chasing David that he wasn't doing what a king of Israel was supposed to do, which is to get rid of Israel's enemies. This is what has led some people to say that we should approve of all of David's decisions here. But I think there are some other clues that lead us to think otherwise. But for now, let's just note that God is perfectly capable of fulfilling his well-known yet rarely believed promise in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And though we are not in the same type of covenant relationship that David was with God, right? He was selected to be a king, a covenant king. There's all sorts of differences there. We are in a covenant relationship with God. A new covenant relationship with God. And so we can and we should marvel that for those of us who are hidden in the covenantal favor of Christ through his new covenant, we should understand God is committed to doing good to you. You can't screw it up. If you're in Christ, he's going to do it. 
You may take the long way, you may take the bumpy road, but God is committed to doing good to you if you are in Christ. Even though that's the exact opposite of what our sins deserve. We've got to get this into our heads. This is how God treats us all the time. But when problems come up in our lives, what's the first thing we do? How many times have you heard someone say, how could this happen to the Herods? They're, I mean, it's the Herods, right? Because we don't understand God's ways. God does not just like do temperamental blessings for good people and bad things for bad people, right? The Bible is clearly turned that up on its head. God treats us with undeserved favor, and we get it confused. This is how he works, even in our sin. Because of Jesus, there's never a time when God will cease from doing good to you. Isn't that great news? And therefore, we should go and do the same thing. Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Did you catch that? Let's look at some of the bad things that happened in David's situation. The first thing is that he lied, right? We can't really skip this. We can't skip verses 8 and 9. They tell us that even though David was somewhat successful, that he had to be deceitful and to lie in order to make it happen. That's what's going on in the midst of these geography-heavy verses, right? He told the king that he was conducting raids against Israel, but in fact he was raiding Israel's enemies, and he was lying about it. He would take some of the spoil, and then he would take it and doctor the field reports, and he'd give it to the king. I mean, how, how did he get away with that? Like, how, how did that work? Well, that brings us to the next problem with David's behavior is he was utterly ruthless, right? We, we'd love to skip over verse 11, but the author, who probably was a fan of David, he, he didn't do that. He didn't let us. Verse 11 tells us David's motive. He tells us that David killed every single man and woman. Why? Well, dead men don't talk, right? Isn't that like an old western thing? Dead men tell no tales? Maybe it's Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know. But what do, we, what do we make of this? I mean, like, weren't we saying on some level, like, David was actually like, fighting the Lord's battles? Like, I mean, could he be continuing to obey Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God told Moses to devote to destruction all the inhabitants of the land? Well, the author doesn't tell us that. But he does tell us David's motive in verse 11, which is, to me, the interpretive key for this. Look at verse 11. And David wouldn't leave neither man nor woman alive to bring the news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. And such was his custom as he lived in the land of the Philistines. David was ruthless, not because he was obeying God, but because he was covering his tracks. He was, he was trying to cover the lie. In order to maintain the lie that he had used in order to live peacefully in the land of Israel's enemies, because he had failed to trust God, he had to commit another lie, right? Do you see how important our thoughts are? You may think that that thought you're thinking that you're struggling with is not a big deal, but thoughts spiral into actions, and actions have real consequences, don't they? 
We see that all throughout the Bible, and we would be wise to see it in others instead of play it out in our own lives again and again. But it gets worse. We have David's dilemma in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. David's sin really comes up to haunt him. Basically, King Ashik, who was you know, looking on saying, man, David's really, he's making himself a stench, right? Can you, it's like someone going, well, I don't want to draw too many comparisons. It's like someone going to join our enemies for a season and then coming back. Like, David was going to be the future king of Israel. This is a major blemish on his resume. Well, there was that time that I fought with the Russians, but I'll be a great president, right? You know, like, it, it, it doesn't work. You've got to understand what's, what's going on here. I mean, Ashik bought into it, and he was looking for a rent check, right? He, he tells David that he expects for David to send his men into battle against two, his own people. All this time that David had been lying, that he had actually been attacking his own people, he was thinking, ah, oh, I, I, can, I can pull this off and get away with this, right? He had been so convincing that in verse 12, Asha said that he actually trusted David that his, because his own people hated him now. Well, what would David do? What's David going to do with this? Well, the story gets dropped in verse 2. I think we pick it up later. We've got to pick up on Saul and his crazy stuff in chapter 28 next week. But we see David's reply very well, verse 2. You shall know what your servant can do. And Ashik said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. I was reading that the Hebrew word there is it's literally that you will be the protector of my head. Right? David can't be trusted with Philistine heads very well, right? You remember this? I mean, do you see all the irony and all the stuff that's going on here? We should pay close attention to this. Let's try to bring this full circle. David fails to trust God because he's enduring what seems to be a never-ending trial. We can relate there. And as his faith wavers, he has to resort to some other God, some other sinful option, some other refuge, and he does so by taking refuge in the land of the Philistines. But to stay there, he had to sacrifice all of his principles to, by stealing and killing and lying. And now here he is, a year or something later, and an unforeseen consequence comes up, consequence comes up that now he's being asked to become the enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, Whenever we choose to disobey rather than obey God, we do that because we think that our decision will make our life easier. We do so because we think obedience will make our life harder and disobedience will make our life easier. And sometimes, in the short term, that may be the case. It would have been easier for Jesus to come off the cross. It would have been easier to turn that rock in the wilderness to stone. But here's the thing. When we choose to disobey, we are pretending to be smarter than God. We're saying, all right, God, I hear you, but I've got a better idea, right? You may not know all this about my circumstances, but this person that I'm married to, I need to, I'm exploring some other options, right? Every time we choose to sin to make our lives easier, we cannot foresee all the consequences that are coming. You, you, we're just not that smart. We just don't know them. David did not know that the whole village of Gad would be slaughtered the last time that he forgot God. 
And he didn't know that in this situation, 16 months later, his lie would put him into another mess where more of God's people may have to die because David is foolish. Disobedience is always dangerous. Let us condition our heart with that truth. It always, in the moment, seems appealing. Otherwise, it would not work. Temptation, wouldn't, temptation only works if there's bait on the hook. Fish don't bite hooks. They bite baited hooks. Same thing with you and me, according to James, right? We only bite baited hooks. So if we learn, like, you've seen the, the cartoons where under, underwater you have the, like, the fish, the schools of fish, and the teacher's like instructing them, this is what the hook looks like, right? This is our moment, guys. We got we to understand, okay, there's bait on the hook, so don't bite the bait, right? That's what's going on here. Just because you can't see the danger in the moment of temptation, it doesn't mean there's not danger. That's, we're just not God. And this is why he has given us his commandments, to protect us. Psalm 119.105, you could say it. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You can't see without God's word. This is why we are instructed in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, to trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. And what should you not do? Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. So what do we make of all this? If we're honest, and I think we should be, right? Some people say, this is church. We dishonest outside, never mind, right? If we're honest, and if we give this text a balanced reading, and if we look at the whole of David's life, I think we have to say this. David is a mixed bag, right? Like, seriously a mixed bag. He has mixed fruit. Sometimes he's faithful, yay David. Sometimes he's sinful. Sometimes his actions produce the fruit of righteousness, and sometimes they produce the thorny deeds of the flesh. David shows us a mixture of both faithful and ungodly actions. But notice, how does this affect David's relationship with God? Well, on the one hand, we have to say David's sin made his life harder. His child that was born out of his adultery, God killed David's sin, as your, your sin and my sin will, it will make our lives harder, not easier. I imagine that the godless nature of this chapter could have meant that, I'm just imagining here, that David's 16 months in the land of Philistine were not very good spiritually. No, I don't know. We read nothing about David seeking the Lord and his help. We read nothing about him calling out for direction. Sin will make our lives harder. But for those of us who are in the safety of the new covenant, even catastrophic, Davidic-like sin will not separate us from the favor and love of God. And that's amazing. God did not treat David as David deserved. And he does not treat you, Christian, as you deserve. The longer that I study the life of David and Saul, the more I'm convinced that David is not quite as much of a hero as I thought. In fact, I think we could say that the divinely inspired author of this book goes out of his way to make it clear that David possessed all the same weaknesses that Saul did. I mean, right? Do you see that? Like, what's the difference in them? 
uh, for, for months I've been saying that the difference is that David repents. And I'll, I'll stand by that, but I want to add something to that. I want to tweak it a little bit. What's the main difference in David and Saul? Yes, David repents, but why? I mean, is David like a better guy than Saul? I mean, they both forget God. They both have murderous hearts. They both have inflated views of their own importance. What's the difference? The difference is God's grace. God's grace on David. And that makes all the difference in the world. Brothers and sisters, whether you identify more with David or more with Saul, more with Rahab or more with Paul, it doesn't matter. We all have wicked hearts and we all need a Savior. David was no less worthy of God's grace than Saul was. And neither are you and me. And if we, if we don't believe that, we don't believe in grace. At least not free grace. We don't believe in grace. If you don't believe that, you see the whole purpose of David's life and the covenantal favor that God showed him was to bring Jesus the son of David, into the world so that God could open up this mercy in a whole new, full way. It's to bring Jesus, the son of David, the true king, into the world that all of the world, all the Davids and the Sauls, the Rahabs and the Pauls might be saved. My dear friends, and the problems that you and I face in our lives, don't run to Philistine. Don't run to King Ahash. Don't seek safety in the arms of the world. Run to Jesus. Place your faith in him. He alone can provide the safety you long for. You don't have to clean it up first, and he doesn't spit you out when you fail. It's covenant love. He's standing by it. That's the the story, the true story of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us to get this into our hearts. To marvel at the grace you've shown us so that we would be so quick to turn around and show this grace to other people. Let it solve our security problems and our identity problems. Let it solve our fears and our anxiety and our temptations. But Father, we're thankful that even when we fail, even when we resort to this body of flesh, We're so thankful for Jesus and that you treat us according to his work and his life and his death and his resurrection. Receive glory tonight in our lives, we pray. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. You dismiss church. Go in peace.